Okay, nice to be back with you this morning. and uh, Appreciate your uh, effort in a month like December to have special meetings and uh, trust the Lord will bless you in knowing Him more through the Lord Jesus. Most of you know we're studying the tabernacle. Already had a long session last night. Have four more today, Lord willing, two tomorrow, but we'll just do a little overview so we're all on the same page as we begin this morning. So if you could reopen your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9, please. Hebrews chapter 9. New Testament commentary on the Old Testament tabernacle. Okay? Hebrews chapter 9. Verse 2. Hebrews 9 verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made. All right, was a tabernacle made. We mentioned last night. Tabernacle means tent. It was a tent where God dwelt. It's a tent where somebody lives. And it was a portable house of God as they journeyed through the wilderness. And it became known as a tabernacle or the tent of his presence and so on. So when we say tabernacle, we're referring to the tent where the living God dwelt in the midst of his people. But as he's writing in the New Testament, if I can take you down again to verse 9. Verse 9 here. It says, which was a figure for the time then present. Which was a figure. And we remarked last night that word figure is the Greek word parabolis, translated elsewhere, parable. Which was a parable for the time then present. So that God has given us a parable. You know, an earthly story, an earthly model, but with a heavenly meaning. Not all the parables were told by the Lord Jesus at the Sea of Galilee. There's a very big parable in the Old Testament, of all places, called the Tabernacle. And it will become a picture story of heaven itself, of the gospel of the Lord and where He dwells today. Uh, we learned last night that they, they, the holy places made by hands were just figures of the true. But Christ has entered into heaven itself. You can't see heaven, but you can see this model God left us. It's not the way we operate today, but it points to the reality in the Lord Jesus. This model only stood, this tabernacle, until Christ came. Looking at verse 10, Hebrews 9 and verse 10, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. So this Old Testament system with priests and sacrifices and everything else was temporary. It was only imposed on God's Jewish people until the time of Reformation. And we remarked last night that is not Martin Luther. He wasn't born yet. It is verse 11. But Christ being come, and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, none of this building. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the tabernacle. But to understand somebody we can't see, God has left us a parable, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so we're looking at the tabernacle not as the way we go out literally to sacrifice lambs and burn incense, but as to show us the fulfillment and understanding the heavenly Christ. We're treating it as God treats it, as a parable. And so we began last night with God himself in the Ark of the Covenant, as it's known as the Ark of the Testimony, and what it testifies about the living God and his fulfillment 
in the Lord Jesus. But as we progress on, and we also reminded ourselves last night that the tabernacle, there it is, uh, God in the midst of His people, uh, right in the midst of His people there, His cloud, His glory cloud, and so on. And this is uh, acting up this morning. There we go. And give you some other pictures of it at nighttime, the pillar of fire. And we'll be seeing some of these more later. But we reminded ourselves last night, there's three major sections. There's the outside court or courtyard. Then there's the sanctuary itself that had two compartments to it. Room number one, we learned in Hebrews 9, was the holy place. Room number two, behind the veil, the holiest of holies, right where God dwelt between the cherubim over the ark. And we reminded ourselves that in this, that there's major activity that happens in all three sections of the tabernacle. Beginning on the outside, the big thing that happened on the outside courtyard was sacrifice. Every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, says Hebrews 10 and verse 11. So it begins out here, from man's approach, to uh, sacrifices for sin. But then as we progressed on, we saw there was a holy place, and the big word over there would not be sacrifice, but we learn in Hebrews 9, 6, that the priest would enter in here into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. And so, yes, there is sacrifice for sin, but is that all that God is after? No, there's a service of God. No sacrificing in here. No animals killed in here. They went into first tabernacle, Hebrews 9, 6, accomplishing the service of God. And there we see an example of that. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, as the day goes on. But then that, that third section, room number two of the sanctuary itself, uh, is the holiest of holies. And what happened there? Well, uh, there is something that happened once a year, but in the beginning, God told Moses in Exodus 25, 22, right there, between the cherubim, over the ark, there will I meet with thee, and there will I commune or speak with thee. It is where God, Moses heard God speaking his will to him, where he had intimate fellowship with God. And so this is speaking here, or communion with God. And so we start to learn in this a, a little bit about the gospel here. Uh, it begins with sacrifice. It doesn't stop there, though. It takes us to the service of God, and it doesn't even stop there. It's going to eventually take us behind the veil into God speaking, communion with the living God Himself. This is what God is after through the gospel of our Lord Jesus, pictured in parable form by uh, the tabernacle. So it's those three main sections we'll be dwelling on today to one degree or another. Tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll highlight some of the things, and uh, as the Lord leads me, I'll decide what to highlight tomorrow. But today we want to kind of deal with these three sections here and see how we progress, but we'll be beginning out here shortly. Now, uh, again, having said that, there you see the tabernacle, and you see the wall around it, okay? So let, let's go. Let's go to uh, chapter 27 as we examine the historical record of this parable, 27 of Exodus, Exodus chapter 27. Book of Exodus 27. And the tabernacle itself had a court wall around it, a fence, okay? 
And uh, going to chapter 27, and look at verse 9. Verse 9, it had this white linen wall around it. Exodus 27 and verse 9. And thou shalt make the court of the tabernacle for the south side southward. There shall be hangings for the court of fine twine linen and hundred cubits long for one side. And so as you see up there, uh, the sanctuary is in the middle where God will dwell, but surrounding it is a wall. And it's made out of fine linen. I'll show you another picture here. There you see it again. Now, as you go by big homes, you ever see a house with a wall around it? You know what that conveys? What do you think that conveys? Keep out. It's not open for everybody to come in. And God put around his house a big fence. In fact, we get the dimensions of this fine linen here. If you go further in chapter 27 and look at verse uh, uh, 18. Chapter 27 and verse 18. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, and the breadth fifty uh, uh, everywhere, and the height five cubits of fine twine linen, and the sockets of brass. And so as we look at this a little more closely, uh, there it is again, and uh, it's five cubits. Now if we have the cubits right, they think a cubit is the size of an average man's elbow to his fingertips, and they've measured that at a foot and a half. If that's right, that's seven and a half feet, okay? So you just can't just step over it, you know? It's a real wall. Uh, even your Los Angeles Lakers couldn't stride over it. Uh, it's, it's seven and a half feet, okay? And uh, not only that, we learned it's 100 cubits. It'd be 150 feet by our measurements this way and 50 feet this way. To give you a little perspective, it's about half the size of an American football field, 100 times a 100, 150 feet times 50 feet wide, about half the size of an American football field. And so we, we see this white wall here, and uh, show you another picture of it here. And there's God in the midst. But what we simply see, one thing that comes across here, with this wall here, that God is on the inside, and man starts out on the outside. God's on the inside, man's on the outside. And that's exactly what we learn in the reality of the Bible. Because of God's holiness, because of God's righteousness, pictured by the fine, clean, white linen, that we are separated from God because of our sins. That we just don't start out saved. Well, I'm saved and I'll just come into God's presence. This wall says, no, you stay out. You, you won't. In fact, the whole Levitical tribe acted as an extra buffer zone before you got to the regular tents and so on. And so there's a barrier between direct access to the presence of God. It's a fine linen wall. And when we study the scriptures, you know, uh, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. You know? Neither his ear heavy that he cannot hear. Where is God? He doesn't seem to be in my life. He doesn't seem to act. Is his hearing gone? No. The problem is in Isaiah 59 too, but your iniquities have separated you between you and your God and your sins has hid his face from you that he will not hear. And so sin separates from a holy God. You know, the Lord Jesus taught the same thing when he was on earth. You know, in John 8, 21, he said, you shall die in your sins. and Where I go, you cannot come. Because God is holy, sin has no direct access to God. 
And when God built His sanctuary and put His presence there, it was not direct access. There was a wall there of fine linen there uh, that, that kept as a blockade from people just wandering in. And so we see that we're not automatically in the presence of God. Even children can take this in as we teach the tabernacle to them, that God is on the inside and we are on the outside. And so we've talked a little bit here about this wall here, showing you another picture of it here. Uh, there it is uh, a little more close up. Now, I'm going to say a little more, but before I do, the brothers of the assembly today, uh, do you have any questions or comments? This is interactive at times. We want you to dig deeper. Others will know things I don't. Anything you'd like to say at this point, brothers? Uh, today I'm limited to the brothers because it's a church meeting, but uh, after it's over, I'll run with you. <laughs> okay. I know we have my friend Brother Al with us today, and I know he knows some things about this, so you're not going to get away with being silent all day, Brother. Just want you to know. Okay. The linen, the question was, was the linen the only layer? And it was. It was. You can read that in chapter 27 of Exodus. Just a fine linen. Now it hung on poles and sockets and things like that that all have meaning in themselves, of which details we don't plan to go to today. But it's made out of that pure, fine linen, acting as a blockade uh, that doesn't invite you in, but says, keep out. Now, if that's all there was, that wall, I wouldn't be here today. All right? But as you, you continue on with this parable, this parable that God has, and I take you to the eastern side here, you'll see a gate. You'll see, it's on the east. Every time they pitched that tabernacle, they had to face the gate toward the east. That was God's instruction. So that as you came through the gate, you would always be forced to go toward the presence of God from east to west. How you had to do it. How God designed it. You know something else that goes east to west? The sun. The rising of the sun. And now it takes me to the Son of God and the Gospel and the one who rose again. To follow the sun is the way to God. And you'll see that come through in the tabernacle. But God designed it. That, that, uh, by the way, for those of you who want to do a little study on your own, going east in the Bible is always a bad thing. Going west is always going closer to God. Maybe the reason I moved west. No. <laughs> uh, but going west is. And the tabernacle itself, you're going from east to west. Going from east to west. Following in nature uh, the circuit of the sun. But when I come to this gate, and there's only going to be one gate, it tells me something, that while there's a blockade that keeps one out, the gate says there's a way in. There's a way in. If there is no gate, well, there's a great God, I can see him from a distance, but there's never a way to approach him. But a gate tells me there's a way in. Now looking here in chapter 27, chapter 27 here, again, I'll take you to verse 16, Exodus 27. And verse 16. Exodus 27, verse 16. And for the gate of the court shall be a hanging of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen wrought with needlework. And the pillars shall be four and their sockets four. So 20 cubits, it would be 30 feet wide. 
And it, you notice God says that gate had to hang on four pillars. We have it illustrated here. One, two, three, and four. He didn't say five. He didn't say three. He said four. He has parabolic meaning in all of this. So here's this one gate. It's called the door in the King James translations, but other ones will translate it the gate. We'll technically see later as we study the tabernacle that the entrance into the sanctuary, that's actually the door. This is technically in the Hebrew, the gate, sometimes translated door. But uh, this is the gate, this is the door, and behind it is the veil we'll talk about later. And so we have this gate, and it's associated with the number four. Notice it hangs on four pillars. We just read that, didn't we, in verse 16. Brothers, do you see another four there? In verse 16. Four sockets. four sockets. Pillars set in four sockets. Do you see another four? How about the colors? Yeah. And it's always in this order in the Bible. Blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, that white. And so those four colors are associated with it. Now, as you think of this gate or the door, we know it's a parable of Christ. The New Testament tells us that. What did our Lord Jesus say in John 10, 9? I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and go in and out and find pasture. And so he's the door to salvation, to eternal life. There's a way. Yes, God is holy. Yes, if you die in your sins, you'll not enter in. But God has provided a way to him, and that way is through the door. Now, in this tabernacle, it happened to be on the east side. How many doors or gates do you see in, in the wall? How many gates do you see in the wall? One. I tell you, kids can even take this in. There's only one way to God. Not two gates, not three gates, not one for the north, east, and south, different cultures. There's just one way of approach. And as we learned last night, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus said. Remember John 14, 6 last night? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father, but by me. He is the only access to God the Father is God the Son because salvation is of the Lord. And so the tabernacle in its very simple form conveys to you that there's simply only one way to God. God provided one way in. A great barrier around it, but there's not access on every side. Only on the east side uh, there's this one way in. Now there's a, it hang, hung on four pillars on four sockets. As you study in the Word of God, uh, the number four, sometimes that number four is associated with the world, with the earth. And I think you know why. There's four directions to the earth. You know, north, south, east, and west. You know, the Lord Jesus in his day, he was telling the Jews who didn't believe on him that they're going to be thrust out of the kingdom of God. But they're going to see people from all the world, from the north and the south and the east and the west, come down and set in the kingdom of God, Luke 13, 29. And he used those four dimensions. And from the four dimensions, you see, this gospel, this Christ is not just for Israel, it's for the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that number four takes us to the four corners of the earth, the north and the south, the east and the west. Like some brother to read nice and loud for us, please. Read Revelation 5.9. Watch how this number four is connected with all of humanity. Revelation 5 and verse 9. If a brother would read it nice and loud, please. Thank you. 
How many categories of people did you read there? Or kindred and tongue and blood, people and nation. And so it's the world, the peoples of the world is associated with the number four as you study the Word of God. And this is a gospel that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, yes, there's only one way, but God puts in a number four saying, well, there's one way, it's for all. It's not discriminatory. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Any comments so far on this simple door, this gate hanging on four pillars on their four sockets? Brother David. Yeah. Well, that's the first time I heard it, so I'll have to meditate. I'm not saying it's not good, but uh, I'd have to meditate on that. It's certainly true. I mean, it's a true statement. We accept the Lord at different times in our life. That's absolutely true. Some very young, uh, some older, and uh, the adversity of prosperity. I just never consider that. Don't want to say it's not true. Just uh, don't know what to say other than thank you. <laughs> In our model that we made, we, we push it back on rings, but that doesn't count. Uh, I, I, I haven't discovered in the Word of God, Bob, how it's done. Uh, you, you, I just haven't discovered it. It seems to me it would be something that would move, you could, like a curtain, you know, uh, because they, uh, it is, they are called curtains, but I, I don't, unless somebody has more on that, I don't. But the point is, it did let people in. Ah. I'm glad he observed that. We have three openings. Now, did it let people in through all three openings? I don't know, but it's possible they could have just folded the thing up. You know, That'd be the, a very logical way, and then you can come through through all three openings. So while it's four, it only gives three openings by design. And as you think of the gospel, you have one God, but how many persons is he in? God three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And you get baptized in all three, and you, the whole three are involved in salvation. And so I, I see that three as pointing to the triune God. Uh, did it open up to, you could use all three? It could have if, it was, if you lifted it up, and that's all I can say. But the three openings point me to one, it's one, it's called one gate singular in verse 16, not called gates, called gate, yet it ends up with the number three on it as well as the number four. Simple, beautiful design by God, Justin. You're asking me questions I've had to be there. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I, I just, at night, uh, with enemies and that, I'm not sure, okay? But I do know this much, that all were invited. Israel could come through it. Uh, there was access. Uh, but whether it was always open, I don't know. And if people know, yeah, brothers, you know, you feel free. Yeah, yeah. Now, whether it was open at 3 a.m., I don't know, but they did have to access all day long. That's for sure. That's for sure. Okay, that's a good point. 
As soon as you started to say that, it clicked. <laughs> we, we have gates and we have doors in our houses to let people in, but, but if it's not meant also at times to be closed, you wouldn't need it. You wouldn't need it. So the gate itself demands that it can go both ways. Thank you, brother. Yeah, or, yeah, absolutely. Not everybody in those days had access. That's exactly right. Yep. In the temple, you have the doorkeepers. You don't read of them quite yet here. There might be there. When the temple of God, you'll see gatekeepers or doorkeepers, those to guard the entrance to God's house. And in Ezekiel 44, at one point in Israel's history, they failed, and they let the Gentile come in and profane the sanctuary. They were their friends in that. Let the unsaved participate in the house of God. And God said, that's one of the reasons I shut it down. And so the doorkeepers failed. But as you see, uh, the temple that Solomon built, you'll read in the, depending on your translation, gatekeepers or doorkeepers. So there were in the house of God. It doesn't technically mention them at this stage in the tabernacle. One can only assume. But yes, yes, very good. Yeah. 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 But 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 in the tabernacle, in the temple, absolutely. You study it, you'll see the gate and the assembly of God today. The house of God today. House of God today is not is not the Jewish temple. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. First Timothy three fifteen. Do you think we need gatekeepers? Think everybody can partake in the Lord's supper in the assembly? Every doctrine, <laughs> tremendous truth we've got on. I don't plan to go with it uh, too far, but uh, yes, eventually there were gatekeepers. And this building here, uh, the tabernacle, this is a very simple picture of it. That's called the sanctuary, okay? Let them make me a sanctuary. It means a holy place. Now, in the Old Testament, the sanctuary was always a place. In the New Testament, I know, I know we use it in our language sometimes, so I'm going to challenge your thinking. The sanctuary is not a place. The sanctuary is a people. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God. And that word is the word holy places. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Today the sanctuary, if you want to be technically, is not the building you meet in. It's the people that assemble there, living stones and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. You're the sanctuary. The building just keeps the rain off your head. Okay? Uh, so that one time... Uh, person told the preacher, a lady told the preacher, uh, she said, did you see those young people chewing gum in the back of the sanctuary? He said, nope. What I did see was the sanctuary was chewing gum. And so, you know. <laughs> but that's the point. It has changed from a place because today the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. Hebrews, or rather, Acts 7.48. You are the temple of the living God. We're living stones. Where we assemble, even now, we're the sanctuary. Never mind what the building's different than the one over there. We're the sanctuary. And so, uh, I, and there needs to be gatekeepers for that. Well, I get carried away on things I didn't plan to say, but uh, uh, <laughs> let's move on. Okay. Now, also, we mentioned these four colors, didn't we? Blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen, which would be the white. When God reveals himself and reveals his glory, he often picks the number four to do it. In heaven, when you read Revelation, how many beasts or living creatures do you say, see revealing the glory of God, saying, holy, holy, holy? Anybody know how many? Four. 
Four living creatures, four beasts, revealing the holiness and the glory of God. When God wanted to present to you the Lord Jesus, and John would write, we beheld His glory, John 1.14. How many gospel writers did God choose? He chose four. And so he stamps the number four on this door or gate with these colors, the, the, the blue and the purple and the scarlet, and the fine twine linen. They're throughout all the tabernacle. They're on the priest, they're on the, the ceiling, the tabernacle itself. They're, they're on the veil. They're on the door of the sanctuary. They're, the colors are just all over the place. They're always in that order, blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine twine linen. And they all take us to an aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, blue is a primary color, and so is scarlet. But to get purple, you've got to mix the two. Blue and purple mix, uh, blue and scarlet rather make purple, and then define twine linen. Now, you think of the four gospel writers. You know this. I'm just going to do it quick. Each one of the four presents our Lord Jesus in a different aspect of His glory. So, brothers, what does Matthew highlight the Lord as? King. Behold, thy King cometh unto thee. Matthew 21:5. There's the purple, the royal color there. Mark presents him as a servant, one who is serving, doesn't even give his pedigree, doesn't even give his genealogy. Servants don't need a genealogy. Mark presents him as the scarlet, as the servant. The Son of Man came to minister, came to serve, and give his life a ransom for many. He obeys all the way to the cross. But Luke, how does Luke present the Lord Jesus? What's the Son of Man, the perfect man, the fine linen, okay? The fine linen, that perfect man among sinners. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them, but he wasn't a sinner. Presents him as that perfect man, the fine linen. But then the fourth gospel writer, John, well, he'll go to the blue, and blue in the scriptures remind us of heaven. You even look up at the blue today. huh? Points you up. John will tell us he's the son of God. John will tell us, the Lord will say in John 8, 23, I'm from above, you're from beneath. He came from heaven. Remember last night, the living bread which came down from heaven. John presents him not just as a man or a servant as the king, one whom God sent, his son, from heaven. He's the blue. And so God takes these four colors throughout the tabernacle, starts them on the gate there, and they will be that number four, and they'll match the four gospel presentation of the aspects of Jesus Christ our Lord. In fact, somebody has put it in a little poem like this here. You can see it here. This is tough to see. White tells us he's the only one, or he's the sinless one, okay? White tells us he's the sinly one, the sinless one. The heavenly blue that he's God's only son. The purple show that he as king shall reign. The scarlet says, for he our sins was slain. The different aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that, that's all I'm going to say on the one gate that would bring you into the courtyard. And uh, some of the obvious things it's connected with, the number three, the number four, the colors, the four posts, uh, the singularity of it being just a gate, all taking you to the one who said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. So that, brothers, before we leave the gate, is there anything else you'd like to say on that? Yes. There you go. I had to examine the lamp. There's another four, and it would prove to be perfect before they, without blemish. Watch for four, it's, it's gonna, and, and that, that would be an acceptable sacrifice uh, that would bring glory to God. Thank you, brother. Somebody else. Is there any reason for us to believe that they were vertical stripes rather than 
This is simply an artist's rendition. Every time we make these or people draw it, they just guess it. We didn't see the re It could have been interwoven. And some of them, some places like the veil, it says it was interwoven. Uh, yeah. uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for bringing that out. This is just a simple, well, it's gone, but <laughs> this is just a simple thing here uh, to make it visible on the screen, but it would be much more nicer than that. Thank you very much. Anybody else? Okay. We continue on here now as we go through the gate. Okay, one goes through the gate toward the presence of God here. And uh, we find ourselves at this point in our study, starting outside in the courtyard. That first major section. There's a sanctuary with its two rooms, the holy place and the holiest of holies. called the first tabernacle, this is called the second, the two rooms. But out here is the court, sometimes we refer to it as the courtyard. And uh, we find ourselves out there to see what happened first. As you would approach God and come through that gate, what would you come to first? W would you come to the table of showbread first? No. Or the incense. Or even as Moses could toward the presence of God himself. Uh, those are all good things. They're, they're all where it's taking you, but you don't start there. You start outside in the courtyard. And out there you will see two pieces of furniture, two pieces of furniture, and they will be bronze. They uh, are brass, depending on your translation. In the tabernacle itself, brothers and sisters, there's going to be seven pieces of furniture. Seven pieces of furniture. Uh, let's count them. Outside in the courtyard you have the, uh, am I blocking your view? Can you see when I stand there? Okay. Uh, you have the uh, brazen altar of blood sacrifice. Number two will be the laver, okay, the bronze laver. Uh, it's a place of washing. Blood will never be there, but water, okay? We get our word lavatory from it today. Laver, lavatory, place of washing. And so you have that. You enter the holy place, and on the south side, you will get the golden lampstand. On the north side, you will get the table of showbread. And then be, before the veil, you'll get the golden altar of incense. Not the bronze altar of burnt offering, but a golden altar of incense making number five. You enter the holiest of holies. It looks like one piece, but we learned last night they are two pieces that became one. There's the Ark of the Covenant, which is a box made of a, a shatim or acacia wood, which Brother Dave has left us a sample. Not that attractive on the outside, but very beautiful on the inside. This is acacia wood, if you'd like to look at it later. Uh, and, but on top of that was a pure gold mercy seat. Not with wood in that part of it. Uh, a pure gold, and that was the lid, and that was placed on top, making number six and number seven. Again, God uses numbers. Seven is that number often associated with completion or perfection, right? God created the world in six days. It was very good. Nothing more to do. So he rested the seventh day, showing it was perfect, it was complete. And so that number throughout Scripture often has to do with completion or perfection. In God's nature, that number seven will show them the same thing. You have a head, don't you? If your head is perfect, guess how many holes are in your head? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If there's a different number, it explains something. Uh, seven. Perfection. In, in music, anybody here a music teacher? Who's it? Oh, guys, you would be, yeah. 
Uh, some brother named me the seven notes, the seven basic notes. Oh, I just told you the number. My goodness. <laughs> Do, re, mi, fa, si, la, ti. Do. Something. Seven. All music comes from seven. I can't sing, so I'm not going to try. But uh, uh, it's, And in the Word of God, seven. In fact, you get to the revelation of Jesus Christ, where He is called the Lamb of God. You know how many times, now you've got to think this one through, that you will see Christ referred to as Lamb in the Revelation. That's good. That's a multiple of seven. But it's not the right multiple. And that's getting better, but that's not right. Forty-nine. Seven times seven, the culmination of it all by the time you get to Revelation. When I did research on that, I looked up Lamb, and I said, it said 50 times. I said, that just can't be. And I, so I studied it, and one time the word Lamb is used for the false prophet who speaks like a lamb. It's not referring to Christ. And when it's referring to Christ, it's 49 times. 49. The number seven throughout. So you have these seven pieces of furniture here. Now remember, it's a parable, which is a figure, a parable, for the present time, or some will have for the time then present. And one of the simple ways, and someone has done this, that if you would trace those seven pieces of furniture, you would trace those seven pieces of furniture, you'd start out here, you go into the holy place, and they're on these sides, so you'd have to come out here, and then as you come back toward here in the ark, it actually forms the cross, the way to God. And God would arrange it in a design, complete, and perfect. So we have the furniture. That's what we'll be looking at. We'll be looking at the furniture in these three sections, the outside courtyard, uh, the uh, holy place, and the holiest of holies uh, do a sacrifice and service and communion, speaking, God speaking to us, where this gospel takes us. Now we're going to begin in a few minutes. We're going to begin right out here where God begins. Let me just say this. These articles out here will have to do with cleansing, with cleansing, to make one clean. I'll talk about that when we start our next session up. But the first place God will start is cleanliness. We learned that the sacrifice that is put on here like on the Day of Atonement, the purpose of it in Leviticus 16.31, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. Clean. So that God starts with cleanliness. We have to be clean. I would imagine if I would go to your house, every house I've gone to, from Africa to China to the United States to Canada, every house I've gone to, I've seen something so far in my life. You know what I've seen? Before I go through the door, they have some type of thing outside, a mat to clean your feet on. To get whatever dirt you pick up. A place of cleansing. We have it in our own homes. In fact, I think I see one right out here. Yeah. And God starts with a place of cleansing. Out here, every, uh, some of the major activity will have to do with cleansing. Now that's where we'll be starting in a few minutes, because that's where God starts. He's a holy God. There must be cleansing first, just like you would have that at your house. But what I'm going to do is I'm looking at the clock here. I understand I still have five or six minutes left in this session, but for me to begin the next one and then stop, stop at three or four minutes and take our stretch break might you know, mess our thinking up. So any comments first or questions on what we said, then we'll take our stretch break and continue on. And I'll borrow those minutes back on the second half. Uh -huh. Oh, yes, Brother Max.
Well, our brother, is, uh, you have a couple million people there. It lets people in, it lets people out uh, to get back out. Do you need somebody for traffic control? That kind of has to do with what Rick brought up about a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper, uh, which we do see in the temple. We don't see it mentioned here, but it doesn't mean it couldn't be there. Somebody to control the activity in an orderly way in the house of God. For we do read in the house of God in the New Testament, all things are being decently and in order. So that's the best I can tell you unless somebody knows something I don't, which is possible. Bringing it through the gate, yeah. A little bit. If I don't get the aspect you're thinking of, I'll bring it up, okay? In the next session, I'm bringing up some of that, yeah. Is that right? Hmm. Never thought it. Thank you, brother. Thank you, Bob. Hmm. Seven, a tremendous number throughout Scripture. 